This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this special episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Pedro Mokara, Geotechnical Lead for Canadian Buildings and Infrastructure, Mining and Environmental Services at Jacobs. We'll be talking about the current state of geotechnical engineering, including the challenges faced by small firms, the risk and liabilities involved with geotechnical engineering, and the essential skills for project management for geotechnical engineers. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get started, here's a quick word from today's sponsor, that being Keller. By connecting global resources and expertise with local knowledge and focus, Keller develops innovative, practical, and cost-effective solutions to geotechnical challenges, including deep foundations, ground improvement, groundwater control, liquefaction mitigation, releveling structures, slope stabilization, supportive excavation, underpinning, and instrumentation and monitoring. Keller builds projects designed by others and offers complete design-build services for any geotechnical construction application. Keller was founded in 1860 and is the largest geotechnical specialty contractor in the world, with operations in over 40 countries across five continents. With a North American presence of over 100 years, Keller operates as the market leader with over 60 offices throughout the U.S. and Canada and is the sole source for a complete geotechnical construction solution optimally designed to meet clients' needs. To learn more about Keller, visit our website at www.keller-na.com. Pedram, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Jared. I'm doing very well. Nice to meet you. So it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and, you know, how is it that you got into geological engineering? So originally, I'm from Iran. I was born in Iran. Back home, when you're growing up as a kid, your parents have two dream jobs for you lined up. You're either going to be a doctor or you have to be an engineer, one of these two. So as kids, everybody says, oh, I started collecting rocks when I was five, then I did this and that. But for me, at first I wanted to be a doctor, honestly. So in high school, we had choice of selecting between, you know, going into engineering or into medicine. And, and I made the wrong choice of thinking that I'm going to go be a, a doctor. But then after a few years, I realized that that's not the path. And, but it was too late. I was stuck with that. So we have a national exam in Iran after finishing high school. That's where they determine your path in terms of uh, what university you're going to, what major you have to take. And I ended up getting into a very good university in Iran called Shiraz University to study geology. I was excited about it. Why? Because one of my high school teachers he was the first one who kind of introduced me and 
the possibilities that uh, lie in front of uh, that major, uh, which is geology. So I went in and I started that. But within the first year, I realized that maybe even geology is not passion that I have, but I was more of a, of a numbers person. And it was the second year that I was given an option in my school to get into hydrogeology, to pick courses which are dealing more with formulas and numbers. So I did that, but I didn't know by doing that, I'm getting myself into geological engineering. So the courses that I took many years later, I realized when I came to Canada that they were in line with the geological engineering program. I did that degree, came to Canada as an immigrant uh, back in 1996, and I wanted to go to grad school, and geological engineering was uh, basically the, the major that I wanted to pursue and continue. So I ended up doing one master's degree in that, and then followed by a second one in civil engineering, just to basically complete the loop and kind of satisfy my first. I'm still not satisfied, and, uh, and as you know, Jared, it's the learning should never end like it should always continue we're always learning uh, and i'm glad i did that maybe one day i'll go back to school again but um, that's basically the path that i took to become a geological engineer as somebody that's got you know over 28 years of experience in the field what kind of changes have you seen in the current university systems is relates to training young engineers in geotechnical engineering or even geological engineering are you seeing any different trends or changes for me, because I was back at university a couple of times, maybe I can provide a, a better answer. I think universities need to, like, especially in, in geological engineering field, when it comes down to geotechnical world, there is room for improvement. They need to adopt better. And why is that? Because it seems the industry is changing. The way the, the companies are operating they're changing. I don't see in many companies that they're doing the investment that they should into their young engineers, into their junior engineers. And that's very important. Why? Because I see a gap. Like as a geological engineer, as a geotechnical engineer, when we start our career, we shouldn't be starting it right behind the desk. It starts out in the field. That's where we learn. That's where the basics are. That's where we build the foundation of a successful geological slash geotechnical NGO out in the field. When I say companies and the industry is changing, I see a lot of companies migrating towards boutique type of geotechnical engineering, geological engineering, using a lot of software to modeling, analysis work, things like that. But where does the information for that come from? from the field, from a good site investigation. And at the end is migrating more towards high tech. And the schools are investing more in their students to learn the sophisticated software. Where are the future geological engineers going to learn about the fundamentals and basics of site investigation work? Because I don't think that's being properly taught in the school. And I know they have a challenge in doing that because it's expensive. 
it's expensive to get a drill rig and have a bunch of students log a borehole, for example. But that's the type of investing I think that the schools need to do. Maybe with some collaboration with big companies, with the industry, to along the advanced courses that they're teaching, to also teach the fundamentals or put more stress on the fundamentals of geological engineering. So when we hire graduates from university, they know how to basically to tell the difference between a silty clay and a clay seal, or they're familiar with various type of uh, institute testing that when we ask them about Neil Convey, they know what Neil Convey is, how to do it and how it operates. So there is that gap. What I'm worried about is that if there is not proper investment in the education through university or investment from the companies who are hiring these young engineers, after four or five years, which is that window of opportunity at the beginning of their career, for them to learn these basics and they move up to higher levels, they become an intermediate engineer and a senior engineer, and they don't have the grasp on the fundamentals, what information are they really feeding into the sophisticated programs to come up with the designs? We don't want it to be a garbage in, garbage out, right? When they're looking at the vocal log, do they have the depth and knowledge to look at the log and say, I don't agree with this characterization. I think the person who logged this made a mistake in terms of the choice they had to pick on the institute test, or if they did the test wrong, if the sheer rain results that they're, they're seeing on the log, it doesn't make sense and they just don't take that and feed it into the program because it was done wrong. That's the part that I see room for improvement for our education system, for our university which I don't think it's happened. Collaboration is a good way to address that. So whether it's um, field trips or job shadow or internships or somebody's doing a thesis, make sure that you have folks in practice that are aligning with what's happening at university. You really make a good point of those first few years of when you're starting out, you know, you really should be starting out in the field. You gotta get that field experience before you're doing sophisticated analysis. But um, really good points there. You're a very large firm. There are smaller geotech firms, and sometimes people say smaller firms, you know, have a hard time competing with larger firms. And it's debatable, right? Because I think we've been on different types of projects. But how could a firm set themselves apart in order to ensure success in this industry? Very good question. Good follow-on question to, to what we just discussed by investing in the fundamental, by training the young engineers the way they have to be trained. I had the opportunity in my career myself in the early years to be part of a very reputable geotechnical engineering firm called Boulder. And I always speak highly of the mentality that they had in terms of mentorship and teaching the young engineers to make sure they're ready for future. You know, Boulder, when you go back to the history. It started with two or three engineers 
again, I have the honor of working with employee number three in Boulder as one of my mentors. And we know Boulder doesn't exist anymore. Rest in peace, uh, Don Welch. He was very bright and I learned a lot from them, along with a lot of other mentors that I've had through my career. The passion that I got from him in terms of mentorship and, and teaching young engineers, it was great. I learned a lot. Going back to your question, what I see is bigger firms, they start tackling mega projects. The opportunity for smaller firms is not to cut corners, to invest in their staff because they will be giving back to them. I go back to Boulder Mall because that model build a company based on employee ownership. So employees, they felt part of the company, they felt part of the program. And the whole attitude for them kind of, I guess it changed when they're working for their own company, which was great. But we all know there is a limitation to that type of company as well. And based on what I'm seeing, what I've seen in the past 28 years of my experience is that there is a limit of growth when it comes down to employee-owned companies. I don't see them getting bigger than 15 to 20,000. There are only a handful who make it to that level. It's, it's hard for them to grow. But again, it's an investment in the young engineers that they hire, not to cut corners, and providing the clients with the solution that the client needs. So making it about money for them is not going to build a very good future for them. It's because when they do those investments in their work, they will end up with a quality product, which the client will appreciate. Clients will go back to the companies for the quality that they get. If I'm doing foundation design for you, you will come back to me if the design is sound, but then you won't come back if I have mistakes in my design, right? So there's a lot of things, but maybe I can just sum it in, in that. What would you say are the biggest risks and liabilities that geotechs have to consider in their work? It goes back to the basics again. A lot of construction debates, Charles notices that I see in the industry or construction claims that they see in the industry are coming back is because the site characterization wasn't done right. It's not because the design wasn't done right. It's because somebody missed an organic layer because somebody didn't characterize the soil the way it should have been. It's because somebody, when they were doing their slug testing, their hydraulic conductivity testing, they didn't pay enough attention to do it right. And the watering rates that they got are lower than what it should be. And, you know, they end up having to pump a lot of water or do so many other steps because of the lack of information. Lack of enough boreholes, for example. It's so easy at the start of the project for somebody to look at a proposed borehole location plan and come back and say, this is too costly. Why are you proposing 10 boreholes? Only go and do five boreholes. That's the easiest thing they can do. But what they don't realize is that every single structure requires its own, basically, approach 
when it comes down to side characterization, how close the borehole need to be, right? I had a project up north and, you know, I had to fight with a client over one of the borehole locations. It turned out that once we completed the site investigation, that information was so crucial in the design because we hit a, for example, an organic layer. We were designing a cover for a facility, a kind of a tailings cover uh, for a tailings facility. It changed the whole ball game in terms of how the cover is going to behave once it's placed over that, that soft organic material, right? If we had not done that, we wouldn't have known. So it's very important that you stay to the core and you're able to basically reduce the risk which is associated with the site characterization. Even with that, you know, we start talking about projects and, you know, size and scale of projects. I know you've managed projects up to $100 million and you worked on several multi billion dollar projects. So, how do you manage high stake projects like that? And what are some of the skills that are essential for success in project management and geotechnical engineering? The short answer is being organized. And being organized, it goes to many different directions. Having a, a very clear scope of work at the beginning, which you can come to, to an agreement with the client. So you have a roadmap on how you're executing the project and you follow that roadmap. And as you go along and you make discoveries through the project, you're able to go back to the client and address them, sometimes as new scope proper archiving, proper documentation in the project is also super important. It's not just one skill, it's, it takes a whole basically village to be able to run a big program like that. But once everything is, is organized and is, is able to basically function like a Swiss watch, as we say, then you're able to deliver. But, you know, there is always challenges when you're dealing with, with large programs like that. And you have to be ready. You have to be able to have a vision to be able to see or predict the unexpected before it comes and hits you. The risk mitigation. How are you going to identify the upcoming risks? So once they're identified, and if they happen, then you have a plan before they showed up. So then you're ready to, to deal with them. But if you haven't done all those steps, it's going to be difficult because you're going to be caught by surprise and that communication with the client is not going to be easy and nice. I understand you've been involved in you know, rehabilitation and review of over 50 earth dams and you carried out numerous dam safety inspections. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience in this area and also the importance of dam safety inspections? One thing that everybody needs to know is all the heavens will leak. Although we design dams as permanent structures, but they're not, if we don't take care of them within that service life that we define for them, they're going to go through changes that we call in geotechnical engineering deformation, deformation. So to begin with, the dam is going through that deformation. Dams are not impermeable. They're permeable. They are going to be. So how are we going to, to deal with this? On top of all this, we have the natural elements working on the dam. It can be as simple as just 
vegetation and, and growth of you know trees and shrubs and grass down to erosion caused by precipitation and, and runoff. So all these elements are working to basically to break the dam, to destruct the dam. If we construct it, even if everything is right, these are going to do their, their job and basically bring down the dam. If we don't do those routine safety inspections, or if we don't do our routine dam safety reviews to monitor the behavior of the structure and how elements are impacting it, then we're putting ourselves and the client on a very big risk, which is basically that failure. The recent that failures that we see in the news, and there's been some devastating ones down south, especially in Brazil, in the past five, ten years uh, that, that we know, uh, this sometimes is it goes back to operation and maintenance. Is operation and maintenance being done right? Are they maintaining the right water level behind the dam? Do we have enough freeboard? Are the spillways uh, being taken care of? So there's so many items that have to be taken care of and monitored for the dam to do its job to function as a dam. And we can't just leave it by itself and, and assume that, okay, we built a dam, it's going to function, it's going to hold back this basically tailings or water or whatever it has to do, which may not be the case. Now, in addition to all these, uh, we're going through global warming right now, which we know it's been happening over the past so many years, and which is bringing the other element of risk to our design and monitoring, the importance of monitoring that we have to have in place to make sure that the dam's structure is not impacted. Because many of these dams were built before these extreme conditions that we are facing right now in terms of global warming, right? The high precipitations and the floods that we're seeing, those dams were not designed for this. At the same time, also, when you look at the, the mining side, the, the tailing dam, as you know, we have the different practices of or styles of constructing dams. For example, the upstream method, right? Which barely nobody uses, uh, constructs a dam like that anymore because of the, the risks associated. But there are so many of them that exist right now. How are we protecting those dams? How are we protecting the public who lives downstream of those dams or the environment? That's why such uh, routine inspections and reviews are very important to be followed. And it should be taken very seriously. You're the founder of the Canadian Geotech Group at Jacobs. Tell us a little bit more about how you're doing that and how you're providing quality and consistency across all the geotechnical projects. How are you keeping up with all that? Well, I'm blessed to have a very good team. But before that, I've been with Jacobs for about 10 years. It's been an exciting journey, something that when I look back, I look back at my decision to join, back then it was called CH2M Hill, a great decision. At that time, before joining CH2M Hill, I was with uh, SNC Lavanen working on mega projects, multi-billion dollar projects. But the opportunity came at CH2M Hill because they didn't have a geotechnical discipline and they said, okay, we want to build this team. Can you help? How can you help? And 
I was excited just by the task that's going to have the opportunity to build a team, a group of geotechnical engineers. And I said, yes, it was an easy, it was challenging, but the reward is awesome. It was challenging because basically you have to establish a whole new discipline in an existing ship that's moving. So some of the elements of the existing ship are not used to the new discipline, right? They're used to a different system, different way of operation. So you have to be able to build trust with them. You have to be able to show that you can do the job and basically gain their trust and then build up on the projects that you're doing. And again, I mentioned at the beginning, having the right team members is a very, very important part of it. Team members that they feel ownership also. And basically, we all work as a team, not as individuals, to be able to be successful. And again, as I mentioned, it's been an awesome journey, and I'm proud of what we have been able to establish as the Canadian through technical team legend. Before we take our break, I would like to hear a little bit more. I know that outside of your professional work, you run a basketball league, you've been involved in triathlons over the last seven years. Can you talk a little bit more about how these activities help you to maintain work-life balance? I know that's something that's really important to the folks who are listening and watching. As human beings, we all need something that we can, as a hobby, to basically a change of course. Since I was a kid, I was in sports. So being able to be involved in these activities, it gives me that, that opportunity to stay healthy, to stay fit, recharge my battery, basically, and have more fun. It's not that work is not fun, but, you know, we need to have different type of fun in our life. In terms of, you know, organizations, they also help me with organization skills as well. For example, basketball is all about team building, building trust, learning to be a team player as well. When can you take control and when you have to give control, when you take the ball, when you pass the ball, what are those right moments? So there's so many things that I can take from basketball to my work model. When it comes down to the offense, to the defense, right? How you cover for each other. The floating defense system. Not to leave a, a player so he's, he's ready to shoot the three ball, and, right? So... Just work is just like that. It's not any different. So you can take that basketball model of game, bring it to work, and just fully follow it. When it comes down to triathlon, triathlon, you know, there's three sports, and there's so many things that you have to organize in your head and be ready for to gauge your energy level so you can finish the court. You don't end up with a DNF category, did not finish category, right? I always tell my guys at work, this is a marathon. You're not here to work hard one week. We're not here to work 60 hours a week. We're here to work 40 years. We're here to work 50 years. So gauge yourself the amount of energy that you're spending, the amount of load that you're taking, so you can last 50 years. So you don't end up with burnouts. 
that's where the work-life balance comes from, right? So you bring all these, you learn from these models, you use that. Of course, doing all this is, is challenging. I try to go swimming first thing in the morning when everybody is in bed. Before COVID, I did a lot of uh, commute to work and home by cycling when, of course, Canada is, is not a four-season country, but when the weather was nice and I was able to cycle to work, I did that. Or weekend rides, there, early morning rides. So you have to find those time slots if you can fit it in. And, you know, as my kids are growing up, they are 14 and 16 right now, I have more time for these type of activities and also volunteering as well. So it's fun. So we're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out in Pedram and our career factor safety insignia. Stick around. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. All right, welcome back. It's time for our Career Factor Safety End segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety in your career? Today, of course, we're speaking about Pedram Moltara from Jacobs. Pedram, you've had a very successful career. And when you look back in your career, what's something that you've implemented in your career to give yourself a factor of safety in your career? Thank you for calling it the successful career. We're still... But to answer the question, I think the question will draw because like anything else that we do in, in the technical community, there is not only one thing for our success. I cannot name one thing and I say, that made me successful. In health and safety, as you know, we need multiple items to line up for an accident to happen. It's not one mistake. It's normally few mistakes that they all line up together and the accident happens. So now let's take it back to our career. We need to have multiple levels of safety for our career to be successful. You mentioned about my education and studies. That's one of hard work. Having the right attitude at work, having the, the yes we can mentality being respectful, being a team player, being able to be a leader when you need to be a leader, being able to to follow directions when we need to follow direction. It's all of them together. Thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all the great insights with us. You shared some great information and advice I know is going to be helpful to our listeners. How can people find you? Do you have email you want to share? We can put in the show notes or are you on social media? I am on LinkedIn. I do have profiles on Instagram as well. If somebody's interested to join me on, on LinkedIn or Instagram, I'll be happy to. Then. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you, Jared. All 
I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and our questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 76, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best and all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.